Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, welcome back. Food Talk. Mike Lameco here. A uh, couple quick shout-outs before we get on with today's show. Um, where did I... Where did I, I? So, you know what I do. I eat out for a living, basically. That's the, what we do here. That's my job. See? Someone had to do it. Um, had not been to the new Chumley's since it had been... Chumley's is this legendary saloon. It was like a speakeasy back in the day. West Village. Everybody ate there. You know, Hemingway, you name the... the, the all the greats. Um, the building was almost falling down. Landlord let that happen. It kind of got r- almost almost demolished. And a guy came along. They renovated it. Took years. I think she was out of business for six years. Hey, microphone, stay there. Um, my guitar buddy Rick Kelly actually got some salvaged wood out of there. Made some guitars out of the wood. The Chumley series. But they reopened, and the place is epic. Uh, the chef's amazing. I knew her. She was at Ilbuco for years. Victoria Blandley. She's incredible. She's a Chilean girl. Incredible, incredible cook. So if you haven't been to Chumley's, check it out. Um, really heavy whiskey list, cocktail list, but it, it's solid. And the same dude that owns it. He's a great story. Owns Sushi Nakazawa around the corner. Um, which, if you haven't heard about it, that's the guy from Zero, a Jiro Dream of Sushi. So it's a long story, but he was he was a restaurateur from, I think he's from Staten Island or Brooklyn, or they're almost the same, aren't they? Um, shh, don't say that. Never say that. Sorry. Um, and his parents had a restaurant in the Bronx, and he was watching. He was sitting out with his wife one night. He was cooking, so he came home late one night. And they were watching. Jiro on Netflix, and he said, I want to open a sushi restaurant, and I want to get one of those guys, and he did, and it's a crazy, crazy story. I'm going to try and get that on camera for next season's Real Food, and the guy is amazing. I mean, it got, it's, you know, I don't care about, well, I shouldn't say I don't care about it. It matters, I suppose, but Pete Wells, four stars, that's huge. I mean, there's not that many four-star restaurants in New York, like maybe five right now. Um, got four stars in the Times, and he, no sashimi, no hot food, no cooked food, well, just sushi. And I was there the other night for the chef's tasting thing at the bar, and it's three seatings a night. You have to reserve a month in advance, midnight, at midnight, the month before. Um, sells out constantly. You can sit at the chef's table. It has to, you have to be a deuce, no singles. There's room for, I think, 10 people, and then there's room for another 40 in the dining room. It is unbelievable. Like, I've eaten at 15 East. I've eaten at, I'm, I mean, I've eaten everywhere, right, for that kind of thing. And this guy is on another level. That was great. And then I want to give a shout-out to two young kids out in Brooklyn. Where else, right? So Prospect Heights, uh, Olmstead is amazing. It got a great review last summer. The chef's an astonishingly talented kid. He worked at his first job was at Elania. I mean, imagine that. Imagine Elania, you know, Chicago, Grand Ack. It's like his first... He grew up, went to high school. He went in there. Uh, he was, did an internship. His the only thing on his resume was like Popeye's Chicken or something. He got a job with Grand Ack. It's worked his way up. Then he got a job at, per se, I think, Next for two years. And then Blue Hill at Stone Bar. This is like crazy. And then he worked in Copenhagen for a while. And then you figure after all that, you'd open up some bespoke... 18-seat tasting menu, $300 precious thing in Brooklyn. Uh, you know, Bushwick maybe, like where I'm sitting, and kill it. But no, he opened up this restaurant with his partner called Olmstead, and it's so approachable. There's nothing over $25. That's the rule. No, no main course is over 25 Most of the menus in the high teens, low 20s, insane wine list. And not surprisingly, they're packed, three seatings a night. Block away, another new restaurant, Fawn. I knew this chef. He worked at Vinegar Hill and at... Wine Disciples while that was still around, and he's killing it. So two restaurants in Brooklyn. i got to give credit to Kings County for attracting all that talent. All right, today's show, all wine, all show. Um, and Long Island wine. How about that for me? This microphone's going to drive me nuts. Um, 
Yeah, Long Island wine. So I have to, in the interest of full disclosure, I have to say this, and I'm going to apologize to my guests, because I drink a lot of wine. I love wine. I've been drinking, I mean, I'm a chef, so it's been part of my life for most of my life. And every night with dinner, I go to wine stores. I really care about what I drink. Um, frequent chambers and discovery and my favorite little niche at hole-in-the-wall places. And have traveled a lot through Europe and have been done wine shows, done press trips, written about it, been there at the Crush. I would probably a half a dozen years in different regions, and I've never been to the Long Island wine country ever. And it's dude, like really? So you've been to Galicia and you've never been to the north? No, but we're gonna fix that, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we're coming out. I'm coming out in the fall. I'm coming out with the camera, and we're gonna do something on that. So today's show is Kelly Koch, who is the winemaker for Macari Vineyards, which is its own interesting story. Uh, there was a Mr. McCarry, a Joseph McCarry Sr., who was a Queens real estate broker, uh, made wine at home like a lot of Italians did. I grew up in West Philly, and it seems like, I mean, we were, my grandfather was drinking wine that came in one-gallon green jars with a screw cap that somebody made in that neighborhood with I don't know what. And that's why I grew up, I mean, I was little, I remember like, they would dilute it and I would drink it. I have no idea what it was. But anyway, he was into wine or in, in, in that cultural way, the way Italian-Americans so often were and are and bought 500 acres of land, which was a potato farm in the mid-60s, and sat fallow for most of those years, which may or may not be a good thing. Good because they weren't spraying all over it, so it wasn't full of pesticides and it wasn't full of fertilizer and all that kind of deadly stuff. Um, but they did have to sort of resuscitate it. In 1995, Joseph Jr. and his wife decided they wanted to turn it into a vineyard, and the rest is history. We're going to talk about that, and I also have Alicia... That's correct. (laughs) Sorry, Alicia Eckler. I'm just terrible, and you told me like a minute ago. Um, Who runs a tasting manager for Lieb Cellars, another winery out there that opened in 1992. Started at 12 acres, now it's 85, so these are kind of big plots of land. Uh, The winemaker is Russell Hearn, and in this case, as is mostly true with Macari, uh, all the wines they produce are 100% estate-grown. So... Let's start with Kelly, if you don't mind. Tell me about... So to become a winemaker, how does that work? (laughs) Sorry. Is that like a weird lead question I just thought? No, I mean, there's not really one answer to that question. I figured as much. (laughs) Like to become a chef, to become anything, like I don't know. Yeah. But you tell me, how did you become a winemaker? And why? um, I became a winemaker. I grew up in Napa Valley in California. And done. Question answered. Okay, next question. <laughs> Which doesn't make me a winemaker, but that's where I grew up. So I, I grew up surrounded by it, and it kind of was part of my life growing up. Um, it was weird for me to move somewhere where not everyone knows a lot about wine, because um, you know, growing up, everyone I knew was involved in the wine industry somehow. So that was just kind of part of my upbringing. And I went to UC Davis. Um, I actually, I went to UC Davis to play volleyball there. So when I went to Davis, I hadn't decided on my major yet. Oh, no kidding. So you had a volleyball scholarship or something? Yeah, so I played, I went there because I was going to play on the volleyball team. So did volleyball pay for college? Not completely, but they helped. That's cool. I mean, go Title IX, is that what that stuff was called? (laughs) Right. I mean, well, that's kind of new. Like, you you take that for granted but in my generation sorry yeah. wasn't happening yeah so, so that's cool so title that's how line. i ended up at davis and then while i was there i i found myself in discovering the viticulture knology major and going into that okay. that's so, so cool and yeah. so did you stay did you do some work in california before coming out to long island yeah okay. so i um while i was at davis i worked with andy walker who's a big researcher on um phylloxera and and um he does a lot of work with grapevines um pierce's disease and stuff like that so i worked with andy and um he set me up with my first job with behringer um which is obviously a huge um winery but i was working in the vineyard so i i um mm was working with Drew Johnson, who's their viticulturalist, and um, helping scout their vineyards all around the Napa Valley and um, worked for them. It was it was an internship, basically, um, and getting some good experience there while I was still in school. And then when I finished school, I worked a harvest in Burgundy um, for Louis Jadot. Um, again, a, a, a large... relatively house. small house. Kind of obscure <laughs> family. It's, uh, so you may they, or may not have heard of They them. actually have multiple wineries. So I yes, worked they at do. the one um, in, in Bone, in the, like oh, the central winery, which... Bone's you know, got the, the windmills, right? That town? 
right? Or windmill or something? Yeah. Yeah, it's so cool. It's so like, like you're driving along and it's like, oh shit. It's like, France is just like that. Like, it's like postcard beautiful. Like, we, were we in Alsace together? No, no. I'll, yeah, Champagne. But well, I mean, it's just like, like you see the pictures and you get there and it's like even better than the pictures. <laughs> like, so Bones got that window. Anyway, keep going. Sorry. Yeah, no. So it was amazing. And, and they made obviously some, you know, high production wines and then some wines where there was like one or two barrels, you know. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a very cool experience to see that spectrum of quality and to get to be there. I was there in 2003, which was like the hottest year ever there. And, uh, yeah, people like dying in Paris that yeah. summer. So it was kind of it was it was kind of a bummer to work there that year because everyone there was like, "Oh, we've never had a year like this." So it wasn't really a typical year for me to learn. Like, was the harvest really early? It was very early. Yeah, yeah we started in August. So, yeah, <sighs> it was you know it was, for the Chardonnay for the Noir. For the, you know what? To be honest, I don't remember okay. what came first that year, but um, but that's crazy. That's that's yeah. early. Yeah. So that was my first experience working in a winery. Um, was in France, and then I came back to the U.S. and worked um, a few years in Napa for Bouchain Vineyards, who did custom crush for a lot of different clients, and worked there, and that's kind of when I was getting curious about working somewhere different, just because I had grown up in St. Helena and, and had been kind of in the same area my whole life, and after being in France, I realized that that was fun to kind of explore, so I ended up... Um, getting the opportunity to come out to Long Island with the plan of staying for like a couple of years and going back home, just getting like a new experience. Um, and I'm still on Long Island. It's been 11 years. So that's my, so 11 years. Yeah. And you, the entire time you've been the winemaker? I've been, I, I came as an assistant winemaker um, and uh, for Bedell Cellars and, and. Well, they, they're one of the old OGs. Yeah. yeah. So working with Kip and then um, became the winemaker there in 2008. And then moved to McCary in 2010. So I've been with the McCarries for seven years. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, Alicia, tell me about Leaf Cellars. What's the background? What's the backstory? Because you do, your job there is what? Describe it to me. Um, I'm the tasting room director. So uh, we have two uh, tasting rooms since we have. Are they like beautiful and wood paneled and. Um, one, yeah, so they each, they each have their own identity, um, since we have, uh, two labels, um, each tasting room kind of matches the identity of the label. So we have the Bridge Lane Wine, uh, tasting room, and that's kind of the more like young hip, um, it's much modern interior decoration. And then we have the Lieb Cellars tasting room, which is a little bit more in line with the kind of rustic, um, North Fork style. So it's a kind of a upcycled kind of barn space with, you know, really big pieces of old wood and big red barn doors. So it, they're both very different. What's the other label? Because I know Lee, but I don't know the other one. Bridge Lane. What is it? So um, we have five wines under Bridge Lane. We actually put them in alternative packaging. So it comes in bottle box ke- keg and soon to be can. Yeah, that keg thing is kind of, do you guys do any of that? Yeah, we do. That's funny, because I had two women here last week that own a little bar on the Lower East Side called LOIS. It's Avenue C and 6th. And their whole wine program's wine on keg. I mean, I'm like, I, I, I had to like do my homework. I actually went there like one day and talked to the store next to Like, when did that become? So it, little by little, it's becoming a thing because it's, it's, you're not wasting glass. Mm-hmm. So it's environmentally clean. Absolutely. We're not worried about corkage or corked wines. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the systems they have, you use some kind of a gas, Aragon or something. You could like what? What? Is, how's how many? How many bottles? Is There's there? roughly twenty six bottles. Twenty six bottles in a yep. keg, and uh, it keeps the cost low, so restaurants can pour some pretty decent wines that are you know priced a lot lower because they're in a keg. Um, so instead of buying you know some swill that's three dollars a bottle, you can get a keg, and you can get a product that's much higher quality and still keep your cost low, and that's really important for us because you know uh, the way the region is set up, you know our costs are high, real estate's quite high as and as well as labor, so that helps us get our wines into local restaurants, especially in the city and other parts of Long Island, without having to get, keep our costs so high. What percentage of your sales? you first leave um, is like directly from consumers going out to the vineyard or you selling directly to restaurants I mean do you have, like how's that pie chart look oh man um, I'm not quite sure but I'm gonna kind of I'm gonna try and guesstimate that it's maybe half and half half of it's being sold on but location. I think I right. think that wholesale is actually starting to take over a bit um, it's really picking up um, we're distributed in I believe 10 states now 
Um, so it's it's definitely growing, but as is our tasting room traffic. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, we've been written up in the New York Times, um, both in terms of real estate, restaurant reviews, um, and the wine region. So this added attention is definitely boosting up our tasting room traffic. I would say um, every year, it I would say there's probably 15 to 20% more foot traffic, which is incredibly significant um, for the North Fork and just for a small wine region like that in general. Yeah, buddy of mine is Greenport. How do you get to Shelter Island? Is it Greenport? Yeah, yeah buddy of mine. He's well, such a good Frankie DiCarlo has peasant restaurant here on Elizabeth Street. He's great. One of my favorite restaurants really in the city. And he and his wife have a house on Shelter Island. So they, every weekend they go and they try and summer there if they can. And he just bought a restaurant in Greenport. Um, so that's going to open this summer. I wonder so what that restaurant is. So that kind of near you guys? No, it, <laughs> it wasn't. Is, yeah. It wasn't. Well, it, it used to be like on the water. It was oh, on. So and, they, and they had to rebuild. It was like falling apart. It was dilapidated. Or maybe Blue Canoe also. Or it could be Blue Canoe. Don't ask me, but I know it was a real headache for him to sort of go through the zoning board. Oh, yeah. It was like a question. Of, and I know I live in Cape May, which is just like like a nightmare, too. Same thing. Absolutely. But, so we had to go through the zoning. And then it was like re- putting pilings in, like reinforcing the thing. So he's right on the water. I think it must be Scrimshaw. It's got to be one of those yeah. two for sure. Well, I guess, so I'm, I guess, is that is that near where you guys are? Yeah, yeah. it's about oh, that, 15 minutes or oh, cool. 20 minutes. Cool, cool. So maybe we'll, well, we can squeeze him in somehow. He's, he's, he's great. So his food's like Italian, rustic, wood fight. His, his kitchen in in the city was got really popular because when he first opened it, he built it himself. He's one of those hands-on kind of guys. Um, it was, there was no gas. The entire kitchen was wood-fired. Like, even the saute station was wood-fired. And the only concession he made, the saute station is the pasta station, too. It didn't work. It was just tough to kind of feed wood and do this. I can only imagine. So that's the only station that he switched to gas. Everything else is still wood-fired. So it's cool. That's and, impressive. Yeah, and the French chefs all just fell in love. Like, Papadin came and then brought Bocuse and brought Ducasse. And, and then Bocuse came behind the stove and was laughing. He was like, oh, my God, this is... I, and this is kind of kitchens I trained in, in before World War II. <laughs> yeah. We used to use coal. <laughs> Why are you doing this, man? Because it tastes good. Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, so... So tell me, um, this whole thing about uh, longitude, latitude, I don't know if it's germane to anything, but I'm going to ask because uh, I, I kind of was curious. In terms of where you are that way, what's the equivalent in France? In Bordeaux. Bordeaux. Yeah, yeah. Bordeaux. Okay, that's interesting. But then, but then it doesn't really explain much because we have totally different soil types in a way, right? So, and elevations. You don't have a lot of elevation, neither does Bordeaux. So you had it because I know it was one of your spec sheets. It was like sixty feet, and then another one was like a <laughs> hundred feet. And I'm like, really? Do we even want to go there? Like, <laughs> is, that, is there a lot of wind moving over there? We're getting like diurnal temperature swings. But yeah. I mean, sixty feet is considered kind of high. Yeah, there's not. I mean, it's pretty flat area. That's yeah. uh, when I first moved to Long Island. That was the thing that struck me most. I think was it you used know, to be potato how farms. is this happening? Yeah, <laughs> yeah so it used to be potato farms. It used yeah. to be long expanses of potatoes. Yeah, I think our maritime but, climate and the water around us uh, definitely create something special there too. Though talk about that. So don't, I want to talk about that because I mean that's so. In, we have psalms here all the time. I don't get that many winemakers coming through, but. You know, we're always talking about terroir and temperature changes and being near the coast and just all the things that can affect the vine, the grape, the soil, the sun, and then ultimately the juice and the finished product. So talk about being near the water and how that affects things. Because right, right now the, it's going to be a little cool. I mean, today's hot. Forget today's an anomaly. It's May and it's 95 or something. It's 15 degrees cooler on the North Fork right now. Right? Yeah. Because the water temp near you, I don't know what it is now about you, but I know where I live because I'm an open water swimmer. And we're, we all wait in the spring for that temperature when we can go in in our Speedos and do a mile or two. Um, and it's cold. I mean, our, our ocean right now, it was 60 a couple of days ago, dropped down to 55. So inland, it's one thing. And then it's like every quarter mile you go to the beach, it just it's like you're going into an air conditioner. Same yeah. effect out there? Yeah, it's all moderated by the water, and, and that works both ways. So, you know, during the summer, you're getting, I mean, especially this time of year, like you're getting the cool water coming in and bringing a little bit of cooler air, but also like going into the fall, the water's warm surrounding us. And Which is great, that's right. So right. Um, it's really moderating, and it's really what allows us to grow grapes out there. So we're surrounded by the Long Island Sound and the Peconic Bay, and it just kind of protects us. We're protected a lot from, like, the really severe storms, too. Um, but especially um, when you come out to when you come to work harvest this year, when we put you to work, <laughs> when you're out in the vineyard, you'll see... Um, 
the Macari site's really interesting because it does actually have some elevation in the backside of the farm, and our the plantings closest to the water are like right near the water, so we get a lot of um, breeze coming over the the bluffs there, and. You know, for us, it's being, you know, we have humidity during the summer. Um, that's, we have a lot of disease pressure. Right. That was another question. So yes. the, among your challenge, we were just talking before we went live on the mic that this year, um, I've, you know, love Loire Valley wines and have a lot of, you know, Pascaline and other friends who are like attached to the region emotionally and then every other way. And it was just like they had two frosts at the end of March back to back that were just absolutely horrible yeah one week the three three days can then then another week for three more day a week after and they're just like some of the vineyards it's like total loss right so but like, with you it's it's yeah, more it's, fog and more what is well it? it's it's mildew so mildew. you know we get a lot of rain during the summer so um the fact that we are near the water we get lots of breezes coming through and if we do have a rain event then we get you know the wind blowing through right away and and we try to keep the canopy open so everything can dry out really fast so we um, it's the same thing with the sandy soil in certain regions that would be devastating but for us with getting rain during the growing season we have good drainage and it's actually the perfect um, soil for do you for irrigate or do you need to not usually but you have it if you need it we have it in certain blocks if we need it um, it's you know there's just certain years that we've had to use it like you know where we you know actually the past couple of seasons going into the fall we've kind of gone into a drought condition which you know is not completely normal but it's not a bad thing um, towards the end anyway right yeah so kind of helping the with juices, the ripening. yields aren't I mean, not that you're out for yields, but I mean, so you less yield, but more concentrated fruit. Right. Yeah. yeah. And doesn't, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of sandy, loamy, so you have sand, gravel, a little bit of clay in there somewhere. Yeah, a little bit. And of it clay. tends to produce wines that are, uh, to use generic terms, softer, less tannic, more aromatics. I mean, that's sort exactly, of the, yeah. the qualities that go along with it. Right. And we're, we also have really great acidity on, on Long Island. Well, that's so. where it's talking. Was that today's thing? <laughs> <laughs> that's thing. Yeah. So it's, we, hold on. Just, Dave, cut the microphones. We're going back. Hi, Mike Hill, Mike, I want to introduce today's show. It's about Long Island wines and acidity. <laughs> this is the beginning. Yeah, sorry about that. I was Somebody hijacked my brain. I acid. So, let's talk about acidity. Um Lieb, you produce what? So you are, I mean, let me ask both of you. Because the, the looks like, when I look at Long Island wines, with a few exceptions, I see Chardonnay, I see Merlot, I see Cap Franc. Um, what else am I seeing? You Pinot... Pinot Blanc. Pinot Blanc. Mm-hmm. Now, Pinot Blanc's in it. So what's the origin of Pinot Blanc? So we're going, are we going to Europe? Are we going to Alsace? Where's... Anybody in... Anybody know? Because I'm trying to I think. Want to say there's all these Pinot. I'm looking at Kelly I'm thinking for the I mean, stuff. I, had, when I was doing my homework today for this. Obviously, I didn't Google it or I would have had an answer to that. But the only time I know of Pinot Blanc that I've had it as a pure varietal, 100%, was in Alsace. Okay, but, we'll just say that's okay until someone. Kelly is not yeah. so I'm going to say. Yeah, that. I'm nodding my head. I mean, it's pretty. It's closely related to Chardonnay too. So I don't know the, its actual origins though. And as, I'm and, glad you don't. I feel less bad about knowing. And that. as a grape, describe it because it, is it particularly aromatic, polyphenolic? What's it, it is, like? It is aromatic. Um, we should say you have some here, don't you? We do. Yes, well, I brought a bottle. So if you, you want to, yeah. Try. Why don't we try it? Um, so give me one glass. Can I do this? Um, it is definitely higher on the acid. Um, it's got a nice racy acidity to it. Um, you're going to get a lot of those citrus notes on there. Um, I don't want to. Describe it too much because I want you to make your own decisions. No, you about... describe it. I'll just, okay. I, just, I, read, I, I just read off the tasting notes. That's all. Yep. I do. So it's um it's very it's light bodied. Um, it's super crisp. Um, this is a wine that we've been known for for the longest, um, and it pairs really well um, with mm. our local shellfish, which we have a lot of out in the North Fork, which is great. Hundred percent stainless. The seasonal. Hundred percent stainless. That's correct. And it's by far our most popular wine, um, both in our tasting room, and I believe it does very, very well wholesale as well. Um, I think it's a really versatile wine um, just because it's it's got bright acidity, but it has so many fruit notes in there that it doesn't just feel like this super No, and lemony. then as it gets into your mouth, there's a roundness to it, there's a softness to Absolutely. it. I don't even... A sweetness, but there is kind of... A sweetness yeah. with acid, but there's that balance on the Absolutely. other side. Of, it's really of some important weight. for those high acid wines to be balanced. Otherwise, it just feels very brackish, and you kind of get tired of drinking it after some time. It's like biting a lime or something. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. not pleasant. Yeah. So talk about so you you like studied wine, and you're actually out there doing like making it. 
acid in wine. It's it's funny because the American palates kind of moved over the last twenty some years. And I remember a long time ago when I was still chefing, and I would talk to distributors in the early days. You know, Kermit Lynch's people would come, or Neil Rosenthal's people would come, and they were proponents of European old world wines that some of them, many of them, Dresner's portfolio, they would it actually turned out to be organic or bio. And the characteristic was they were all high acid. Uh, there was just, that was the style of winemaking. It was, it was the grapes and the expression of the fruit that way. And we all love them as chefs, and the Psalms love them. But the blowback from us was, I can't sell these. <laughs> Back in the 90s and 80s, people just were averse because Americans at that time were drinking these you know, just uh, can I just the, big, sorry, like big exactly. Yeah, I just hate to say it because you know, like bullshit Chardonnay that was just over oaked <laughs> and fat and sloppy, and that's what Amer- That's what we wanted in our mouths, and to have something that was whoa, what is this puckering thing? Does and then I now you fast forward to today, and that whole style of of oaking and over oaking and sort of manipulation post crush of the components that wood gives wine and that kind of is kind of gone out the door. I mean, I mean, who would have thought that you'd go to restaurants and find that like Jura wines are popular? Jura? I mean, 1% of France like Poussard Trousseau 7. I think varietals no one's ever heard of and and oxidative on top of that like it's like when did that become a thing but it has. Yeah. So as a winemaker, talk about acid and wine how you manage it, where it comes from, and maybe even the, the types of acids involved, because we're in reds and whites, slightly different, and through fermentation, if it goes through mallow, that changes. But talk a little bit about that, if you can. Okay, so um, basically the acidity in wine, as the, as the fruit is ripening, you have um, malic acid and tartaric acid, and basically as the fruit gets riper, the, the amount of malic acid is dropping, um, and so okay. the big secret, or the big, it's not really a secret, but the, the key to having great acidity in white wines is picking it before you lose that acidity. So um, maybe picking a little on the earlier side. Um, what we do, especially with the Sauvignon Blanc, which um, we have here, is um, we kind of pick it at different times. So we'll pick a okay. lot of it really right. early. Gotcha. Um, so we get a really good backbone That's going to get, that'll acidity. guarantee the acid, the early, less ripe fruit. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, picking some of it later just to kind of round out the aromatics, but, um, you know, trying to have the majority of it with that really high malic acid content. Um, with the reds, um, by the time we pick it out on Long Island, the malic has dropped a lot, but there's still a lot of malic compared to other regions. Um, and then all of our reds go through malolactic, so that's converted um, from malic acid Tilactic. to lactic, which is more, you know, softer and um you know, can be a little bit creamier. Um, and for our style, most of our whites don't go through malic. So we want to keep that fresh acidity. It goes really well with our seafood. So you and block it with temperature? Uh, we block it with temperature, yeah. Okay. So if I'm going to stop it, if the fermentation's done, right. we'll just chill the tank, let it settle out. Um, done. And yeah. And Is this native yeast? Uh, it's not, no. But it's we, curious because the style, the Sauvignon Blanc is sort of. Touchstoney kind of wine. I mean, there's, there's like there's the New Zealand West Coast, super tropical, pyrazine, cat pissy, like fruit bomby, and then there's like Sancerre, more traditional. Yeah. Like to me, this is like Loire style, is what I'm trying to say. Right. Yeah. So I mean, we it's it's hard to compare our prefer, Sauvignon sorry. Blanc to like a specific region because it's very unique to us. But um, you know, it's definitely more in that style than comparing it to New Zealand, it's it's not really always the best comparison. So um, we really believe strongly in Sauvignon Blanc for Long Island. We think it's a really nice fit. And um, as a winemaker, it's really fun wine to make because the whole way along, like, the fruit tastes amazing. It's, it's really fun to taste the fruit as it's progressing, as it's ripening. And then the fermentations always spell, smell awesome. And it's just a fun wine from start to finish, so... A question for for Lee, and if you don't know, maybe you can help out with because you might have the answer. So, in your Pinot, the one that we were just talking about, white wine, we think it's um, the origins may be the Loire Valley. Burgundy. It's Burgundy. God. Burgundy, but most planted in Alsace. Burgundy. It's thought really? To have, thought I, to have originated in Burgundy. Oh, but but I don't. But yeah, we have to. Yes, sir. Sorry. 
Yes, we're going to wrap one second here. We're going to keep going here. My, my, my man's talking to me. So anyway, you know what we're going to do? Let's take a spot. We're going to come back with our guests in a minute. Our engineer's going to tell us what's going on. But we're going to have a quick spot now for people to bring the show together. And we're going to come back with this great question about Pinot Blanc and why the fermentation takes 40 days. That's my question. Hold that thought. Folks, Mike Kalameko here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-80s, when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, the Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I, I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their family's moved here, so there's Colavita's living in Rome, Colavita's living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I'd recommend you try it as well. done radio before. I just want to announce this to everybody listening. This is the first time we've all done So anyway, all right, so I threw the question out there. And do you have any idea? So what, 40 days for the fermentation? It's just, yeah. what do we think? It's just a slow um, Yeah, I'm going to make an grain. educated guess, which is that um, I would assume that a shorter fermentation time would be because there's less sugar in the grape. Right. So the more sugar you have in the grape, the longer you would need the yeast to convert everything into alcohol and CO2. So um, that, and then I would say because it's a cold ferment, um, you know, white wines are generally well, fermented colder. 60 degrees in your case. Correct. You hold it at 60 degrees. Yep. So I would assume those things combined would mean that, you know, the since it's cold ferment, 40 days as opposed to, you know, Okay. Eight to ten no, makes sense. You know? Makes sense, and, and different. And you write about sugar content because we were off mic. We were saying that when I was in Alsace a few years ago, I visited a lot of producers, and they were saying that their the Alsatian Riesling it's fermented in these ginormous format oak casks that are huge, but there's no oak contact because tartaric acid is built up along the walls of them in like inches thick, like like that. Um, but because of the lack of the sugar and the sty- the type of grape, it can take 100, 120, 140. It yep. takes a long time, and they said the same thing. I think Chardonnay- it's also like picked relatively early, um, not early, early, as I would assume the Sauvignon Blanc was. But um, So I think that it's also not like ripened all the way in order to achieve the style of wine that we look for in our Pinot Blanc. And it's nice because it's on lees longer, and I always think the longer you have things on lees and sort of that little... Gets more interesting. Yeah, that sort of magic that's happening with yeast and yeast die-off and poly phenolic blooms that you end up with this more interesting finished wine. So I was kind of half-asked a question a minute ago. The Chardonnay is planted in Long Island because it works well there or because at the time when Long Island, because it's a newer winemaking region, like like the early, like who are the early pioneers? We're talking about 70s, 80s, 80s, 90s? Yeah, so the Hargraves, um, Alex and Louisa Hargrave were the first um, people to plant in, I think, 73. So um, that was kind of when it all started, but it was a, f- a few years till you know, till other people planted. So, like, the early 80s was when I would say more and more, more people were kind of experimenting. And, and the choice of Chardonnay at that time was because the market would have said this is a white varietal that people drink, or because... I think uh, Cornell did some recommendations of, of what would work in the region, and... and Chardonnay was one of them. Merlot was one of them. So, like, all those, you know, the things that are kind of everywhere that we see, that was kind of what was recommended at the time. Um, And both of those do grow really well out on Long Island. 
Um, Chardonnay does well because it's, you know, pretty disease resistant for us. And, um, you know, we, we actually are really proud of our stainless steel style Chardonnay. We make a small amount of barrel fermented Chardonnay. So for us, it's been a really good fit. Um, we also do a wine called Early Wine, which is a high acid um little bit of sweetness it's like a nouveau style that we make and we i saw listen. that and i was like wt what is that <laughs> it's it's what a, is it what is early wine I it's a delicious there. wine so it's basically like is a celebration. is it a red it's, it's a white it's, it's a, a chardonnay white. it's a chardonnay yeah so, so it's picked early it's picked early we pick it the same time as our sparkling wine um and it's fermented super fast we leave a little bit of residual and we bottle it during harvest um, so it's like a celebration of the harvest, and it's it's always bottled, you know, end of October, you know, and it's out by November, first week in November. Um, and it's kind of, for us, it's fun because, I mean, no one likes bottling during harvest, but at the same time, it's fun to be, um, you know, celebrating the harvest while we're still working. So, How long has Makari been working with Cap Franck? Um, since 97 was the first vintage that they released uh, Cab Franc. And why? So, so we're, I know you had some of your, of the reds planted that I saw, you guys, and for the most part, most of Long Island, it seems to be Bordeaux blend varietals. Right. So we're looking at Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot. Right. Right. Because you're the same longitude latitude kind of or because they just blend well together or because of soil type you tell me well i mean again originally a lot of those were planted because that was kind of what was recommended for the region um and they do really well and um at mccary we've moved towards more cab franc versus merlot um merlot is interesting but we think cab franc's a lot more interesting and um we think that it's a really great expression of the region um the wines are really savory and beautiful, and, and the acidity works really nice. And um, it's, you know, Cab Franc and Sauve Blanc are kind of the backbones of, of our program. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, because Sauvignon Blanc originated in Bordeaux, moved up to Loire, where that's kind of, kind of where I knew it from, and then it just became a global phenomenon. Yeah. But, but, the, but the style they do in Bordeaux and Graves and the style they do in is different to right. me than that's the style you're doing right. by my takeaway and I love Cap Franc I mean because I've sort of fallen in love with Loire Valley the last four or five years as a wine drinker and Cap Franc is this funny grape that was like the bastard child of Cabernet Sauvignon or something or looked at, and like yeah, I can't get enough of it and I'm seeing you're going on Long Island it's also, the Finger Lakes is doing a great job with Cap Franc um, so what are, the, what are your biggest challenges out there is it is it fog is it mold is it I mean and are we seeing it getting warmer? Because you've been there a while now. Is global warming beginning to affect your harvest too? Well, I think definitely we've had really, really good years the last few years. Um, it seems to be getting warmer. I also think it seems like the weather maybe is a little more like extremes the last few years. Obviously, we've seen that everywhere. Um, but um, I guess one of the biggest challenges on Long Island is that not every vintage is the same so each year is a new challenge as a winemaker you never know what it's going to be like going in but i think that's it makes it more fun as a winemaker. yeah can i say that i mean i I think that so it's like it's like uh you know i don't know what show that is where like it's the chefs and they're given a box of food and they have chopped chopped yeah Mm -hmm. so it's like that like you're kind of okay here's what you have this year and um, make an amazing wine from that. And I think that um, that means that the winemakers we have need to be, you know, more adaptable. And you can't follow a recipe and you have to be creative and think how you're going to do things and kind of take everything and and take each year and, and make the best of what you can make that year, which I think is cool because I think vintage variation is really amazing and uh, the best regions in the world have it. And um, I think that if the wine tasted the same every year, that'd be pretty boring. So I'm completely in accordance with you. I mean, I think there's this. So what, what's her name? She just wrote that book, Wine. Yeah, Bianca. We'll leave her last name out of it. Um, what's it called? Cork Geek or something? Cork Dork. Dork. Yeah, Cork Dork. Got a copy of it. Skimmed through it. Went really. And then I noticed one weekend that somehow, somehow, she got to write an article in like the Weekend New York Times about how 
how great it was that we have all these tools to manipulate wine post-crush, like Mega Purple and oak chips and the hundreds literally of ingredients that do not have to be on the wine labels. I mean, you could put it through a reverse osmosis, take it apart and put it back together again and create anything you want. And her takeaway was, isn't this great because there's less bad wine around? My take was, S the F up. Like, seriously? Like, that's not great. What's great is that you can still buy great wines that are, that are well-made, made correctly from, I mean, the, what are your, the prices of these wines are in the 20s for the most part? Yep. Right? Like I was kind of looking at 22, 21. You have your high-end stuff, your boutique stuff that's like Reserve Reserve and different oak and that. But we're talking about the stuff that – so that's, that's, that's a bargain. I mean, you're not seeing that much out of California anymore for sure. I mean, a Napa Acres go for half a million dollars. It, I mean, almost a quarter million to a half depending on where you are. I mean, and if your land costs that much, like Burgundy, like parts of Bordeaux, it drives the price to where it does too. Um and then Asimov came back with a great retort, I think, this week, although I still haven't read it. I don't know why, because I, I was filming all day yesterday, all day and night, so I haven't read Eric's piece, but it came all over my Facebook feed. So Eric had kind of had a retort that, you know, know that you know, manipulation of wine with stuff post-crush isn't the answer. The answer is good winemaking practices, and there's, still, and there's great affordable wines. I, I think of, again, back to my friends uh, David Lidley and Eben down at Chambers Street. You know, I buy cases of wine from them all year long, phone them up, pick it up in my car on my way out of town. I mean, there's you know, wonderful Muscadet for twelve, thirteen dollars a bottle. I don't, I just, I keep telling them, tell them to raise the price. You know, tell that producer I'll pay twenty two. You know, this is not fair to be that good. Um, so, what are you looking? What's like the next thing in Long Island? What are you playing with? What's like the new experimental thing you guys are working on? Um, well, are we seeing more sparkling wines? Yeah, sparkling. Yeah. I mean, sparkling's been around. It's a good region for sparkling. Um, again, because because of varietals. Yeah, the varietals and the acidity levels and. Um, so that's, you know, that's a thing there, definitely. Um, you know, at McCary, we have small plantings of some stuff like um, Syrah and um, Malbec and stuff that we're always experimenting with. Um, we're also experimenting with our fermentation vessels. So we have, um, we're fermenting in concrete. Um, we started doing that in 2013, and um, we release actually a, a Sauvignon Blanc and a Cab Franc that are fermented in concrete, and we keep that bottling separate. Um, and um, so we're kind so of concrete always... versus stainless. Correct. What's the difference? Um, the concrete kind of gives a different mouthfeel to the wine. It lets a little bit of oxygen in during the fermentation. And um, for us, it's kind of like a... I don't want to say energy on the palate, but the definitely the acidity plays a little bit different in your mouth, so it almost feels... Mm-hmm. Um, some people comment that the Cab Franc almost has like a effort, not an effervescence, but the sensation. Like it's almost like a minerality that's very strong. And, um, it, you know, we the concrete also, we don't really use temperature control. So the Cab Franc tends to be a little bit lighter and it's just really pure and delicious. And what was this? Um, that's stainless steel um, aged in um, neutral French oak. So our regular bottling is is all fermented in stainless steel. Um, we, you know, we do have temperature control. We get the, temp, you know, fermentation sometimes up to 70, between 75 and 90 degrees, depending on the year. Um, and then a little bit of maceration after fermentation. And then pressed off and put in barrels for, depending on the year, 18 to 20 months. Very? What size? Uh, uh, 60 gallon. And we also have some 500 liter, which is 132 gallons, so <coughs> bigger format. When you say neutral oak, just flesh that out for people that might not know what that means. So that's just oak that's been used, you know, for us it's like five years or more usually. um, So it's not really giving oak flavor. It's more just um, providing a place for the wine to age and mellow out. Right. And there's a little bit of breathing going on. It is oak. So there's kind of... And for the fermentation for for the Merlot, I think, is that open top pump down? Um, We do have... We have different types of fermentation vessels. So um, we do do some punch downs. Um, we kind of do a mix um, depending on, on the wine. So How's that? So you, I mean, I, it's so rare to get a winemaker in here. So you have all these decisions to make. Like that's one of those decisions. Open top punch down versus what and why? Um, so, I mean, for us, we so we have, like, five punch-down tanks. We have some clothes where we're just doing pump-overs. Um, 
we have some tanks that are closed with punch down uh, mechanism inside. Yeah, I've um, seen those things. So for us, I try to do, you know, a little bit of each wine in each type of vessel. So I'll do some Merlot in, you know, all three. Because for me, I'm always trying to create like blending components for our wine. So, you know, doing different fermentation styles to create different types of wines that we can later blend together and make them more complex. So, you know, some really hot fermentations that'll be more tannic blending components and some, um, you know, maybe colder, earlier pressed off. So it's a little bit more fruity and, and, and lighter styled to kind of blend with the other components. Um, I, your Cap Franc's delicious. Thanks. Really, really. Del- I mean, I'm, it's, I'm not, I, you know, the Cap Franc, I think of the war as 90% of my drinks from there and this is just really great really restrained style really sort of old world delicious and it doesn't have I was kind of looking for that I just so considered like a fault but that sort of that one piercing is like green peppery that I see sometimes in Cap Franc it's a little cooler but, and I actually love that people think it's a fault but I think it's, but you don't, you don't have that but it's really really great yeah, and, and some years we do have a little bit of that, and like I said, from, that's... What is it, from ripeness? Yeah, so it's, you know, usually in cooler vintages, we'll, yeah, we'll get a little bit from. of that. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's uh, same thing, like, and the McCarries especially, um, they love that little bit of green style. There's been times... Um, Me too, but for a long time it was considered, like, I guess maybe it was the Bordelais considered, it's yeah. not good, it's not... And, because you'd see it in other fruit and it was a fault, but I think it's... It, it's an expression of Capronc. Right. Capronc just complexity. does that. Yeah. yeah. So it's actually kind of a joke because um, whenever I'm working on the blends, um, I taste with the McCarries there that, you know, they give the final um, approval. And there's been years where Alex has said, oh, there's not enough green in the Cap Franc. Do the blend over. <laughs> so, you know, it's I'm a matter him. of finding the right balance. I'm on your Merlot. So Merlot's funny. I mean, I guess that damn movie Sideways is that the one that just yeah. vilified right mm-hmm. and and it's not I mean it wasn't I mean you go back to Bordeaux I mean it was part of all the right bank blends in a predominant way mm-hmm. um, and some tremendous first growths and on the left bank it was always part of the blend with Cabernet Sauvignon and Cap Franc and Petit Verdot and yet that movie sort of vilified it. But th- this is great. You're Merlot. Yeah. So tell me about what they're aiming for with the style. So I'm Merlot. I think it's just really characteristic uh, Merlot for our region. Um, we do try and kind of stay true to how a Merlot from the North Fork should be. Um, so Which it's, is what? Define so it's going to be medium approaching full body, but we don't make big Merlots because, you know, it is a cooler region. So um, we let the Merlot have a little bit of those um, red berry nodes as opposed to trying to make it, you know, jammy or anything like that. Um, and I think like that... red berries. What's that? <laughs> like cooked, like stewed yeah, red berries. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like that soup, like what you see so often. Exactly, yeah. Old style California. And um, our Merlot is actually usually the favorite of the red flight that we serve in our tasting room, which is really great because a lot of customers try and they try and ask if we can swap out the Merlot for something else. It's that and the Chardonnay, they, they both, you know, tend to want to be swapped out um, and what we do is we say how about we'll pour you the merlot if you don't like it we'll still pour you something else that you want to try um and i would say nine times out of ten they actually end up loving it and most people end up buying it so um i think with you know a lot of really great merlots coming from the north work we're slowly starting to change people's minds about it and we're hearing that movie title sideways a little bit less, which is nice, too. It, and so this is your reserve. I'm looking at the label. I have my glasses yep. on. Sorry. So mm-hmm. 15 acres, 60-foot elevation. So it's your way up there. It's nosebleed territory. <laughs> um, the vines are 18 years, which is kind of getting to be... Getting to be. Young, mature. Yeah. Wines. I just think wines are sort of like people. Yeah, and our, our Pinot Blanc vines are 30 years. So, you know, this is still kind of a younger... And this is, again, a maceration with open-top punch down. Correct. That's the style. And how do they do the oak on this? Uh, ten months in Hungarian oak, which is a bit neutral as well. I'm, I'm kind of getting stoked to come out and see you guys. You guys going to be a part of this trip? Sure, absolutely. We're bringing some cameras out. We're going to have some fun in Long Island and do this thing. All right. I'm going to save my good questions for then. we we'll wrap it up. Thanks for coming out today. Thank no you problem. for having us. Drink yeah. Long Island wines. They're available all the time. I, and I'm trying to think, I, I, to my mind... The year was 1987 or 88. The restaurant was Montrachet. Daniel Johannes was the son. David Belay was in the kitchen. Um, obviously, Drew's breakaway restaurant. And I remember 
them Danielle suggesting a bottle of this Bedel Bedel whatever I'm like what is this shit and it was Long Island wine back then so when did they start when when did that vineyard start Um, Kip planted in 1980 I think so this was really young but it was on the Montreux list then Johannes had it so that was my first experience with Long Island wine so and I haven't had a lot since then. Whoops, sorry, that was thirty years ago. <laughs> sorry, I'm admitting it. I'm a complete it's never too late wanker, to start. So and I live here and you're like that. So I don't get to Brooklyn much, so I don't feel too bad. Um thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for really appreciate thanks it. Thanks for having us. No, it was great. And we're gonna be I'm really stoked to come out there and actually kick the tires because you can't really that's where I love to do um like film trips or press trips where you visit. Because it's one thing to like have the glass and read the thing and do the tasting notes or maybe even have like a master psalm do a presentation. But then when you're there it's like the whole shit comes together, like the sky, the light, the air, the smell, the ground, the soil, the so- like it's there. So it, this will be fun. And I guess if we're doing this in September, you'll be in full on crush. Yeah, we start. I mean, beginning of September is when things are just starting. So by the end of September, we'll be very busy um, and ready for some helpers. All right, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Be Thank back you. next week. And I think next week the whole show is on Long Island Wines again. So, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. I'll, I'll give some love back. Thank you. Stay tuned. See you next week, folks. Thank you, guys. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.